It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 27th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. War in Ukraine is driving up energy prices, fueling inflation to hit its highest level in 40 years. A recession and social unrest are feared going into the winter. Germany says gas flows from Russia through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline have fallen to 40% of capacity. The German government is calling on people to use less power and save energy. Last week, a meeting of EU and Balkans leaders confirmed EU candidate status for Ukraine and Moldova. The second day of the summit was focused on on the energy crisis. Now it's 12 member states that either have been totally cut off the Russian gas or partially. And therefore the best is always hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's what we're doing right now. Actually, we have not started now, but we started already at the beginning of the year, a time where we saw the increasing threats coming from Russia. And we have not only prepared by um, going deep diving into tailoring sanctions, but also into working on the energy union from the perspective of um, gas reduction from Russia. All right, that's uh, the president of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Let's speak uh, to the Irish Minister for European Affairs, uh, Thomas Byrne, of TD, for me these. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You travelled with the Taoiseach to Brussels last week, and uh, there's obviously a, a lot of concern, not just here, but across the Union. Well, there's a lot of worry uh, everywhere, because, uh, as Ursula von der Leyen said, and other leaders have said, where Russia supplies gas, they have cut uh, gas um, to very low levels, and we've seen that in quite a number of countries. Now, we in Ireland aren't directly impacted by that, but of course we're indirectly impacted because that affects the price. It also affects sources of gas as well, because countries are now, as I've been saying for some time, scouring the world looking for alternative gas supplies, and that obviously puts pressure on everybody. So I think, you know, we're doing a lot of the preparation at the moment. It's now the summer. Um, Energy ministers are in Luxembourg today, to discuss this issue and talking about this energy union where we're trying to maybe start buying gas collectively and do a collective program on that similar to the vaccine program Uh, and that could work Um, but there's a lot of work to do between now and the winter when of course we have to be ready for whatever uh, we find ourselves with in terms of gas shortages or 
I would say particularly in this case, in this country, maybe the increase in gas prices. Do you think people can wait until the winter? Do you think people will survive that long? Uh, because uh, the Taoiseach uh, has said uh, there's no prospect of uh, a budget before October. Uh, there is uh, the prospect, I gathered, that uh, the doll could force the government's hand tomorrow. No, it's unlikely that the doll will force the government's hand. I mean, look, the reality is that we're now in the summer, um, so the pressure, quite frankly, is not as great as it will be in the winter. Uh, and we want to be ready for that. We want to do that in a proper approach. And that's not just about, I don't know how much money Sinn Féin are proposing to give at this time. The government has already given more than Sinn Féin, in fact, had called for before, uh, over $2.5 billion. Um, But we've got to be ready to make sure we can not just deal with prices, but make sure supply is dealt with as well, mm. uh, deal with tax and deal with pay as well. Um, because these things have to be done together. And I think that's the best way of approaching it. Because if we start doing this every month, we'll then come to the winter when we re- people really do need help uh, at that time, particularly with energy bills. Um, we'll find that the economy might be in the state that we would like it to be in. So we've got to do this the proper way, and we're determined to do that. It can't be done on a week-by-week or a month-by-month basis. Okay, but I mean, we're hearing things like uh, children being bought sandals so that their toes uh, can grow outside of the sandals from groups like Bernardo's. We're hearing uh, demands on food banks and uh, people already not uh, able to afford bills and going to charities and so on. Uh, Is there nothing that can be done for those people in the interim period before the budget in October so that they can live day to day uh, as things stand? Well, I think we already have uh, huge employment in the country. We have a very substantial social welfare system. We have emergency payments for people who do find themselves in really difficult situations. So there's a lot of state support there already. Uh, We have uh, increased that state support, particularly with regard to energy bills. We've cut fuel. It'll never be enough, but we have cut uh, the excess duty on that. We want to make sure that we can actually do work to more homes to make sure that energy bills are reduced forever and not just for this year. So there's a lot of work to go on to make sure that we can do this in a, in, a, in a proper way. And yes, I absolutely acknowledge those stories that are there and there are significant state supports available to people. But I'm absolutely convinced if we start doing this on a week-by-week basis or simply in response to opposition motions that what, what effectively what are random mm. times... Um, we won't be in a way to deal in a position to deal with this properly, and we need to be able to deal with this properly in the winter, because that's when people's heating bills kick in. And while we've seen food price inflation so far, it's not as great as energy price inflation, but it may become uh, greater uh, later in the year. And we've got to be ready for that and able mm. to help people then. When I feel uh, that the crunch really will come, uh, and I fully accept there's a crunch there at the moment, but I don't think anyone can deny that the energy crunch will really come uh, in the winter and that's that goes for all of Europe and this requires a response uh, at a European level at a national level and not just in terms of financial supports to people but financial supports yes tax yes and pay and that's what we want to get right uh, for the budget okay when Ursula von der Leyen talks about preparing for the worst what do you think that might be well what she means is I suppose serious gas shortages in Europe Okay, but the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that there would be particular countries that would be really, really badly hit and perhaps unable to heat homes. Uh, That's the situation that many countries in Europe face. And while that is certainly a risk to us, it is a fact that we don't get our gas supply from Russia, but it's a very, very serious risk for some European countries. Mm. And obviously those European countries that are most dependent also happen to have the coldest winters. Uh, So they're going to be hit really, really hard. So there's a lot of work, as I said, going on at the moment. 
to source those alternative gas well, suppliers pe- pe- that pe- we badly need. People on the European continent, uh, I gather, uh, may not be able to heat their homes because there may not be gas for them to do it with. Here, people may not be able to heat their homes uh, because they may not be able to afford it. Well, if we can get more gas into the European continent, it takes pressure off price, it takes pressure off all of us in terms of supply. So it's very, very important that we work to make sure there's gas in the European continent because it does indirectly affect us here. Mm. And if we don't, the prices will soar. Uh, and that's inevitable, isn't it? Uh, if uh, things continue uh, as they are now, and if then you have a, a food crisis and everything else on top of that, um, do you think that there's the prospect of social unrest? Well, look, I'm not going to start predicting that, but what, I'm, what I am saying is that the government and the European Union is doing absolutely everything possible uh, to make sure that the necessities of people within the European Union are, are provided for. Uh, and I can tell you this much, that we, or indeed any other country in Europe, would have no hope whatsoever if we're just sailing there on our own. Our only hope is to work together with all of the countries of the European Union with the strength that that gives mm. us. Okay. Uh, with the, cl- the economic clout that, that gives us as well. We've seen some protests uh, and uh, nothing uh, that would uh, make you fearful uh, of social unrest at this stage. But you can understand people being annoyed if they're not angry, uh, especially if you can't afford your bills or can't afford your shopping or there's something that has to give in your life, if not a number of things that has to give in your life. When you consider the level of wealth that there is in this country, well, the country is doing uh, pretty well at the moment, and I, I accept that that may not always spread to everybody. And I think it's our job in government to make sure that we can give opportunities to everybody and those who can't get those opportunities that we give help and support to them. Uh, and that's what this government's been about. And we've been massive uh, direct contributions to families this year, but also throughout the pandemic as well. Um, but fundamentally, what we've been about is trying to build up the economy to make sure that we can give Mm. jobs and really good jobs here as well. But isn't Uh, that the point though? Uh, Because it is probably a small uh, number of people, uh, a small cohort if you like, uh, that are finding it impossible to make ends meet at the moment. Uh, I'd say most people are noticing it, they're feeling the pinch, uh, but they're getting by day to day. Uh, So if it is only a small group of people that needs this aid, why won't the government help them now? Uh, that there is help there. There's help through a fairly substantial social welfare system, one of the best in Europe. Uh, there's emergency payments there as well for people who come into particularly dire situations. But if the government starts responding to opposition motions every month or every couple of weeks in relation to this and starts just giving out money, then quite frankly, we won't have money left or an economy left uh, later in the year when we do need help. Um, it's, it's simply not possible to keep doing that. If you chase inflation with direct financial support and quite frankly we've Mm. already done that to some extent but if you keep doing that then you get into a situation where you start causing more inflation yourself okay Uh, we saw that we saw that in the 70s we saw that in the 80s it did tremendous damage to the economy and we now have an economy now where there's two and a half million people working over five million people living not everything is perfect in ireland i fully accept that Mm. but by and large by and large and all the surveys show this and the country is doing very well uh, comparatively uh, we got to make sure we keep that up and to include everybody in that. Nobody should be excluded from it or left out from it. 
Uh, and I think that's the job of any government to make sure that that happens. OK, uh, but uh, people aren't happy with uh, government, it would seem, and certainly not happy with uh, the government parties, according to the latest opinion poll. The Business Post uh, says uh, that Sinn Féin uh, have uh, the support of 36% of the electorate. It's more than the support for Fianna Fáil and uh, Fine Gael combined. Uh, your party in the doldrums uh, at this stage. Uh, is it time to let Sinn Féin try to put their promises I- into action? Well, I don't know what promises they're making, Michael. They just, they're just well, they're promising deciding. a mini-budget. Uh, Pierce Dardy is going to bring a mo- motion to the doll, hoping to force the government to introduce it. He hasn't even said how much. He hasn't said uh, what areas of the budget he cut from to provide that money. He's no idea where he'll get the money from. Um, I think we should, you know, look at opinion polls. I mean, I don't dismiss them, but you do have to look at the in-person polls, which is the Sunday Times and the Irish Times, for whatever reason always show Fianna Fáil over 20% or certainly at a higher level of support. The online polls, for whatever reason, which is Red Sea and the Sunday Independent poll, always show Fianna Fáil at a lower level of support. I have no idea why that's the case, but it has been the case for the last two years. I think we need to look at opinion polls with that in mind. Um, The government has significant satisfaction levels. and The Taoiseach has significant satisfaction levels. I think, by and large, we are doing a good job. Sinn Féin are complaining about absolutely everything. That's the job of an opposition. But in terms of constructive proposals as to how to bring the country forward, I I don't know what they are. I I can't think of a single Sinn Féin policy that would change anybody's life out there except constant complaining, more money, more money, more money. There is not an endless supply of money. I wish there were. And governments have to deal with the reality that we face. We have Mm. to build up the economy to get as much investment in as possible into this country to make us resilient for when the hard times come, because they always do come. Uh, Economies are, are, are cyclical. Uh, and that's what we've been we've been focused on doing. Okay, uh, Minister, while you're with us, I'd like to ask you uh, about uh, the hospital, the emergency department in Navan. Uh, the Minister for Health, Fianna Fáil TD, Stephen Donnelly, has instructed the HSE to hold off on its plans to downgrade the emergency department in Navan. And yesterday, the CEO of the HSE, Paul Reid, spoke to RTE Radio 1's This Week programme. Justin McCarthy asked Paul Reid, would he hold off? No, we're progressing the actions uh, with both in Navan, but also in terms of uh, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Uh, and that's a range of actions in terms of putting more ICU capacity in Our Lady of Lourdes. So you, you're, go- you're going ahead with, with the plans despite being asked by the minister to, to put, call a halt to them, to put them on hold? Well, the Minister has raised concerns with us and we're addressing those concerns over the coming weeks. Uh, ultimately, we have to do, do this because it's a, it's a very significant patient safety. People in the Navan and Mead area uh, are in really at risk of poorer health outcomes and indeed debt if we don't address these actions. The Minister ultimately can determine through Section 10 of the Health Act uh, and direct us not to do it, but I I hope we don't get there, and I think that would be a mistake. A mistake. Uh, Paul Reid went on to tell RTE that he was aware of the concerns that you, Thomas Byrne, and other local politicians have about this. No, look, I fully understand them. These are very real issues uh, that the public representatives are raising on behalf of the community, and we want to address those. And the actions that we're taking, I believe, will address those uh, concerns that they've raised with us. But I can't walk away from 
very immediate, urgent risks that are existing in Navan. I can't walk away from the correspondence that's come to me from all of the clinical and medical teams in there. So we have to address it and we will address the concerns that's raised with us in the process. And that's uh, Paul Reid, CEO of the HSE, speaking to RTE Radio 1's This Week programme. We're playing clips from that, by the way, because uh, Paul Reid hasn't accepted the invitation from LMFM uh, to speak uh, to people in Navan on their local radio station. Uh, Thomas Byrne, what do you make of that? Paul Reid seems intent on going ahead with this. Well, look, I mean, uh, the first thing I'd say is that people like Paul Reid, Colm Henry, Tony Holohan, Jerry McEntee, all of these people who ran our health service during the COVID pandemic, they left Ireland with one of the lowest death rates in the world. So you can't be like Ain 2 or Sinn Féin and just dismiss it straight away in a reaction. These people have, have shown form in how to keep Irish people alive. Uh, so I take what they say very seriously. Now, what I... I'm very unhappy about, and I raised this at the meeting with the HSE officials and doctors, and I suspect this is what Paul Reid is talking about, the concerns that we had. We have a number of concerns. First is that there is sufficient ICU capacity in Drogheda. Second is that there is an extra 10 beds in Drogheda. Uh, And third is that the medical assessment unit will actually be accessible. See, what we're being told, what I'm saying is that, and and, and again, this gets lost in the debate, is that for 90% of people, the Navin Hospital will not change in any way whatsoever. We're talking about the very sickest 10%. The experts are telling us that it's better uh, if they go to a bigger hospital. Now, when I was at the meeting, I asked them, have you got the capacity uh, in Drogheda to deal with these extra patients? Now, apparently, about two of them, two out of the five or six that would be going to Drogheda every day, already go by emergency transfer. So we're talking about a small number of people. But we didn't get a satisfactory answer uh, as to whether Drogheda has the capacity yet. I think everybody agreed it needed capacity, but we didn't see the plans for extra capacity. And that raised serious concerns of me as someone who is prepared to accept the science. And can I just say this about Navin, because there's so much negativity about Navin. People don't seem to know that there are more people working in Navin Hospital than ever before. There's more investment uh, in Navin Hospital than ever before. Uh, it will continue to be a centre of excellence for orthopaedics, uh, for rheumatology, and a lot of these people who will end up getting operations in Drogheda will be brought back to the rehabilitation unit when that reopens as well. OK, but we um, just heard the HSE chief say that he intends to proceed with the plan to close the emergency department in Navan, despite the minister telling him to hold off. He acknowledged that the minister can force his hand and stop no, that from just, happening under Article 10 of the Health Act, but he has said that the minister would make a mistake if he was to do that. Yeah, but what he also said, Michael, is that the minister addressed concerns with him, and they're the, they're the concerns I raised. The ICU, the, the 8 to 10 beds in Drogheda, and whether the MAU will actually be open and, and accessible. Okay, but is, it, that, is that not an embarrassment for the minister? That, uh, no, it's th- not an embarrassment, because, sorry, because what he said was, we're addressing those concerns. Okay, we will want and to you'll be happy. He, 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 he said that there'll be two extra uh, ICU beds in Drogheda, for example. No, uh, it, it, need, it needs more than that, because it certainly needs that. It needs two ICU beds, certainly. Yes, but, it also needs but you're happy with that, well. with the two ICU beds? Well, I said there's three things. There's yes, ICU no, I know. Beds. I was going to ask you about the other two. Yeah, well, that's, that's what all the experts okay. are telling us is needed in terms of ICU. Mm. Okay, and then there's uh, the issue of accessing the MAU because of uh, the GP referral. Well, what we're told is that 90% of people will still be going to what is now the Navin Emergency Department. So we want to make sure that that's actually the reality. There's about 8,000 people 
um, are currently go there for mm. minor injuries, they won't be affected in any way whatsoever. There's but about another eight to 10,000 people then who go, uh, who would still be able to go to an MAU. Mm. A good proportion of them already go, for example, to the A&E with a doctor's letter. Mm. But we want to make sure that it is accessible to all of them. Okay, but what I'm trying to establish is where is this going in terms of who has the ultimate authority, which is the minister, as we heard from Colin Henry uh, on Friday. The government has the ultimate authority. Yeah, and Paul, Paul Reid explained that there. But if, let's say, uh, Paul Reid says we've two extra ICU beds at Andrada uh, and your uh, and local politicians saying no we need three or five or whatever no, it no, is no, and, no, Paul no, no, says, no, and Paul Reid no, no, says and Paul and Paul Reid says just just to finish no, the no, question no. no it's an important question please yeah but uh, you're, you're, you're jumping no. stuff in about local politicians I'm not listening to local politicians no I know but to medical experts. okay medical experts in Andrada but, but the point is the same because uh, just let me ask the question please if you will oh, yeah. minister the, the, the question is this if Paul Reid says all of the systems necessary are in place and I'm going ahead and if there is disagreement, do you believe that Minister Donnelly will invoke Article 10 of the Health Act? Well, I can tell you very clearly, I won't be taking health advice from Sinn Féin or Palatobin. AIM2 and Sinn Féin, during our pandemic, were opposing many of what the government proposed, which kept people alive. AIM2 in particular, week after week in the doll, opposition to many of the measures that we had uh, on COVID. So I will not take my advice from Palatobin on health. I will not take my advice from Sinn Féin. Will, will the minister stop experts. this? I will listen to experts. The minister has already stopped this. We want to make sure there's a proper health service in Navin. We know that this government is investing more than any previous government in Navin Hospital. Okay. More, more people will use Navin Hospital next year than this year. Uh, that will continue for the growing population. There will be different things done in Navin, different things done in Drogheda, different things done in the dock. And most people, if they're honest, listening to your programme here today, will have used a variety of hospitals mm. in Mead, in Louth, in Dublin, uh, for various issues that they might have okay. that require the health service. Okay. It, it, the reality of it's a question of when, not a question of if, uh, idea, and what needs to be done between now and then. Every, 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 the idea that Palatobin has, that almost everything you need will be done in Navin, is simply not something that is true in the modern world. There okay. are specialties in various hospitals around the place, okay. and we have all so, used them. And every so, 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 Minister, it's clearly a question of when the emergency department closes, not if. Well, the question always was, since 2013, since this policy was established, was when, when there when the would yeah. be capacity in Drogheda. That's the reality. And we still, as of the meeting two weeks ago at the health service, we were not given an answer to that. So we cannot stand over this, even though I fully accept what the experts are saying. Mm. If this is going to lead to apps, you know, even greater delays uh, in Drogheda Hospital. Okay. But make no mistake, Navin Hospital will be doing more for more people. Okay, and but, no the, question the, about that. but the, the emergency department will close in time. Minister, thank no, Sorry, sorry Michael, yes? I'm sorry. 90% of people who currently use the emergency They won't be getting emergency department services. They will still be going into Navin Hospital in the same way. They will not be today. receiving emergency department services, though. That's Fiber, the point. So Fiber, they, because the emergency department is closing. That, that five or six people every day, yeah. mm. we're told, need to go to a bigger hospital. The, now, are you telling me that any of them would say, no, I'd prefer to stay in a I, hospital I, where I, people I, are telling me they don't have the service? I, 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 I don't have that knowledge, uh, but I, I do know what the arguments are on both sides. And there is an argument uh, against closing the emergency department. Uh, and uh, it well, seems not, clear not, that that is the intention. It's a question of when and not if. Minister, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. And the Irish Daily Mirror is reporting today that TDs are receiving as many as 40 to 50 calls a day from people who are angry because they've had to cancel their holidays because they haven't been able to get their passports on time. Deputy, I think things, there's no question there have been issues within the passport service. I've experienced that myself through my own constituency constituents contacting me indeed there have been improvements over the last number of weeks i think you'll recognize that too one of the particular issues relates to first-time passports as well where errors may have been made not picked up soon enough and then the families are only receiving that that information weeks afterwards it is a very valid point that you've raised i know that to be fair to minister coveney that the service has been resourced uh, and we've increased resources there wishing over you know 5000 passports you know in in a week uh, really significant levels but it is a time where people uh, you know if they can want to get away on holidays if they can as well uh, and we need to make sure that the passport service can respond to the increase there that's what we intend to do uh, but in Thank fairness you, on the first time passports for children I do recognise that there but people are still having issues there, but we're determined to get to Christmas. That's Minister Darrow O'Brien, who was responding to Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster in the Dáil last week. Uh, let's hear from Deputy Munster now. A very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for jo- joining us. Uh, you say uh, that this is chaotic and totally insufficient. Yes, it's, I mean, it's been going on for several months now um, and people are just in blind panic mode. It's very unfair on people travelling because they're literally left till the 11th hour um, to, you know, worrying whether or not they're going to get their passport on time. Um, My office, and I'm sure many others, literally inundated. I mean, it's right up there with with housing and hospital appointment waiting lists, but it's people that are having their first holiday in three years Mm. and saved for it and looking forward to it. And also you have the problem with so many families' workers having set holidays, you know, that they're given two weeks in July or two weeks the end of June or what have you, and they can't chop and change, you know, um, so they're, they're tied to that particular time. But there's, um, there, there's just so ma- many things that were wrong that they could have put in place. They, they, at the start of the year in January, they had recorded the highest ever number for passport applications. I think it was about 140,000. And that was a massive surge in demand. And they'd actually, the authorities had said that they'd been anticipating that since last summer. But the problem is they didn't plan for it. And it's only now in peak season, like this Friday now, we're the 1st of July, so we're already June is peak season month two. And people are left hanging on for the 11th hour to try and get it. I mean, and there's, there's... different areas that they could have addressed. For example, there was one family that was asked to provide a birth cert for their child three times. Yeah. Um, This is a particular problem, isn't it? I mean, obviously there's a lot of people who let their passports lapse uh, and uh, now they're suffering for that, if you like. Uh, But uh, a newborn child will need a passport like anybody else and that couldn't have been predicted. Yeah. Well, in the sense that the staff were low from the the get-go, so they should have put in additional resources to cope with the, the amount that we're applying for, for passports. Yeah, and they're that's processing the 5,000 passports a week. Yes, yeah. But, I mean, after COVID and lockdown and all of that, the new people would only be, you know, attempting to get away this mm. year for the first time in three years. But simple things that could be changed, like that family was asked to provide a birth cert three times uh, because the passport office had claimed, and it was wrong, that they'd sent photocopies. And... Um, 
my office, we were dealing with somebody uh, who deals with the issuing of those official documents and they said that there was the passport office were having a, a problem reading watermarks on some official documents. Now, I asked the minister to clarify that and I haven't got clarity on that. But there, there are several other operational issues mm. and that would be um, if the, the passport office requests additional information and when that information is given over, then the applicant goes back to the, the end of the queue again. They're treated as a brand new one. I'll give you a couple of examples, even just, you know, yeah. a constituent contacted me with the, the application for their son's passport, right? Um, the passport office received it on the 4th of May. The target date was the 29th of June. And then they phoned the passport office on the 23rd of June because they hadn't had any progress update and didn't know where it was at. They were looking at the tracker online. And they were told that it hadn't even been looked at yet and it was highly unlikely that they'd have it in time for travel on the 9th of July. Another case, um, a person applied for a passport for their teenage daughter on the 14th of April and was given given a target date the 14th of June. Still haven't heard anything, despite trying to contact the passport office continuously, and they're due to travel on the 4th of July. So you're literally left till the 11th hour before they know whether they can travel or not. And I've had people that actually their their date had been missed and mm. they couldn't travel. And yet also... Well, you're talking about two, two, three months waiting time. Um, y- yeah. what, what, is that the average now? It seems to be. It seems to be and longer. Right. It seems to be and longer. There was um, one person who had applied on December, early December, I think it was first or second week, and was given a target date of the 13th of May, right? But on the 16th of May that they were told that they needed um, a new consent form, uh, something as simple as the number eight on the date of the form, they couldn't read it properly, and they were due to travel on the 9th of June. But despite the fact that the target date was the 13th of May, the first point of contact was the 16th of May, which was after the target date, and they had applied back in December. Right. So you've, you've all of those yeah, things. Well, that the minister acknowledges a, a problem uh, and uh, they're doing their best, uh, apparently, but by uh, all accounts, it's uh, not good enough as far as some people are, are concerned. Well, it's, it's not, not fair it's, on it's people. It's not in time. It's not yeah. fair because okay. people are looking forward to their holidays. There's, now, I understand they've recruited additional staff last mm. week, to be fair, and I understand they've recruited, I think it's 32 staff that would be um, employed dealing with, say, the witnesses, say, the Garda witnesses, because yeah. there's a problem there, mm. um, seemingly where Garda witnesses witness the passport. If they were making contact with the Garda station, either that Garda was off when they were ringing or it was part-time Garda station, there was an demand mm. on a part-time basis and they couldn't get through. So they recruited an additional 32 last week. Okay. I'm told. But again, all of this could have been preempted from January. They only re- started recruiting there, you know, in the last mm. couple of weeks. Big problem for people but at it, the moment, obviously. Yeah, when I, you're dealing yeah. with people just in blind panic, you okay. know, and worrying whether one of their family or all of them, you know, are not going to be able to go on their holidays. All right, Particularly listen. those that are set holidays. You okay. know, it's not fair. I have to leave it there, Imelda. We're over time. But thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. As always, Sinn Féin TD for Louth uh, Melda Munster. 
I don't think anyone would disagree, really, but uh, the thrilling All-Ireland quarter-final Armagh v Galway yesterday was overshadowed by downright blackguardism. Let's speak uh, to David Sheehan, presenter of Sunday Sport on LMFM. David, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. It really was uh, disgraceful to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it, was, it wasn't good at all, Michael, and as you said there, like it was the game itself probably one of the best games in recent memory that I can think of um, and football definitely needed that but it, it certainly didn't need what happened at the end it was uh, yeah it was a disgrace and one in particular one incident in particular the eye gouge on, on Damien Comer which was, was clear as day on the television like that that was probably the worst of it like there was a lot of usual nonsense pushing and shoving and lads being dragged here and there and I don't think there was there were too many punches thrown, but but that particular um, incident of the eye gouge, which was caught on camera, is is the one that I think everybody's really really agreed about. Yeah. Were you surprised that two red cards were issued, or or that just two red cards were given? Yeah, I mean it's the old it's the old conundrum for referees, isn't it? And I mean you know from as as being a Mead man, I can go back to the ninety six uh, All Ireland final when there was a melee involving nearly every player on the field, and there was one red card shown each, you know, to one to one player from each side. It's kind of what the referees often do. I mean, what do you do and if you're David Coldrick, do you send off um, you know, five lads from each side? I, I don't know how you do it. Um, and I don't know how they came to that decision either. There was a suggestion that they just pick the two captains uh, and to make an example of them and to, to, to get the lads off the field. But yeah, you could have sent off probably any one of, of 30 lads that were there, you know, and, and a few lads on the bench that were involved as well. So, yeah, look, it wasn't good. Um, what's going to happen next I suppose is the question and the GA's record in making suspension stick is is deplorable so it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this and what comes out of it you know mm. Why is it being handled by the GAA? Why are the guards not getting involved in this? Well you know I was reading a few pieces about it this morning the guards were asked for their view and they said no complaint has been made so it's again it's one of those things it's rare I can't ever remember, uh, you know, to my knowledge anyway, Gardy getting involved in incidents that happened on, on the field. Um, a complaint would have to be made, as you know, to the Gardy. That hasn't happened. So um, I don't expect that will happen. Um, but, you know, <laughs> maybe it'll happen at some point in the future. Maybe that would, would sort this out for once Why and for all. But Why? I, 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 I fail to understand. I, I mean, if something like that happened on the street, mm. uh, the guards would get involved. They wouldn't be waiting for a complaint. Yeah, and I mean, look, Michael. Like things happen on the on the field of play across all sports all the time. That that if they happened walking down the street, there'd be a guard, a guardy, uh, there'd be guardy involved in it. But mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, the guards the guards were asked about it yesterday, and they said no complaint has been made. So I don't think they would get involved of their own volition. Maybe maybe they should. I don't know. But it, yeah. it's something that just doesn't seem to happen. For but it is reason. odd, isn't it? Because it's uh, on the field that a, a number of assaults are ignored by the police. Yeah, again, I don't know if they. I don't know if they actually need to be made aware of it, or if they could see it. I wouldn't have thought so. I'm presuming they can look at that and see it themselves and go, "Well, there's an assault on a guy on a, on a football field." But yeah, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't happen. Um, it's going to be the GA that are going to have to sort it out. But how they do, how they go about doing that, I, I'm not quite sure because it's it's a difficult one for them. You know, it's the second time this year, isn't it, that Armagh has been involved in violent scenes? Uh, is there a problem in the squad? Well, it seems like there's, they've been involved in a few. You know, like there was 10, 10 under 20 players suspended a few years ago for, for a mass brawl as well and in our, in our, involving an Armagh team. And they were all overturned. The four players that were sent off earlier on this year against Donegal, all their suspensions were appealed and overturned. So the problem, the, the GA has a problem in making these, these decisions stick. But the, the other thing is, when are players and when are county boards going to take responsibility for the actions of their players? Do you know what I mean? When are, you know, I, I was looking through Armagh's Twitter account this morning just to see. I knew they wouldn't do anything, but... 
I was wondering if they would come out and say, you know, we utterly condemned the eye gouge yesterday. It has no part in the game. It has no part in, in our in our squad. The player will be dealt with. But there, there won't be any of that. And I wouldn't expect them to do it because there's no real culture of taking responsibility for these kind of incidents in general in the GEA. When a player gets sent off, the first thing that seems to be thought of by the county boards involved and by the, the squads involved, how can we get this guy off? What appeal can we launch here? And generally those appeals are successful. So as well as the problem of, of the GEA having, you know, problems making suspension stick. It's a massive cultural problem in the GEA with trying to get out of things and, and not accepting responsibility for what for, for players have done, you know. So I think that's a huge cultural problem that needs to be addressed, but I don't expect that it will change anytime soon either. Yeah, well, it, it says it all uh, because uh, I think uh, children should be brought up to be a good sport. Uh, this is anything but, and it really shows a very bad example, let alone being very unseemly for people who are uh, attending an occasion that uh, should be anything but violent. Uh, I mean, be different if you were going to a, a boxing tie or a wrestling match or something like that. I mean, this was just outrageous, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and the other thing, and it was, it was mentioned before, and anyone who watched the Derry game on the weekend, I don't know, was it, was it deliberate or was it just something that happened by coincidence, but Derry waited on the field at half-time when Clare went down the tunnel. And there was a directive brought in a few years ago, I'm not sure if it was a hard and fast rule, but that when teams were going in at half-time or at the end of the you know, particularly at half-time, that one team was, was, was told to wait on the field while the other one went down the tunnel. So if Mead were playing Westmead, Mead were told, right, you guys wait on the pitch when Westmead go in. So you don't have that kind of mob scene at the end of a game. But the other side of it is there's, there's dressing rooms on both sides of the pitch in Crow Park now. There's dressing rooms on the Cusick stand side, which is where those players were going to yesterday. There's also dressing rooms on the Hogan stand. So why wouldn't they put one set of players on each side to avoid any of that kind of stuff? You know. Yeah. Um, so there's there's some practical things that can be done, mm. but ultimately players need to cop themselves on and you know to take a bit of responsibility for their actions. Mm. Um, but look, what's going to happen now in terms of suspensions? Not, I'm just not sure. Yeah, well, it seems to be like they should separate them if that's the way they behave. It's just a pity that that's what they have to do. But look, thank you indeed uh, for talking to us about that this morning. David Sheen is uh, the presenter of Sunday Sport on LMFM. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, the population is at its highest uh, since 1841. Uh, the preliminary census says there's 5.1 people, million people living in uh, the country at uh, this stage. Uh, that will be confirmed next year. Let's speak, uh, though, to uh, Brian Hanratty of uh, the Drogheda City Status Group. A very good morning to you, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You say this will feed into your arguments uh, uh, to give Drogheda the status of being a city. What difference would that make to people? Absolutely. Uh, well, I think you've only to look uh, in recent days, Michael, just one example. Um, a subsidiary of the National Treasury Management Agency, the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund, have announced that they're going to invest $500 million in five cities. And Four of them are Waterford, Cork, Limerick and Galway, which in the Ireland 2040 plan, along with Dublin, are the five cities uh, featuring there. The fifth city they have mentioned is Kilkenny, which is half the size of Drogheda, and it is getting a substantial chunk of that investment. Um, It's one of the areas that's critical for Drogheda is to get local jobs. The IDA uh, park on the Denor Road was a complete failure. Um, Andrade is really an IDA jobs black spot. Sure, we can talk about data centres, but they only create a handful of jobs. 
They consume vast amounts of electricity, uh, which poses uh, a risk to supply locally. And when we have the biggest hospital in the region, that's something to be concerned about. So um, becoming a city um, makes uh, uh, all of the state agencies sit up and take notice. Now, they shouldn't have to wait for that in the case of Drogheda because we already have, uh, in the greater Drogheda area, we have a population now of 93,000 people in the broader greater Drogheda area. And um, one of the other uh, measures... Just, just, just explain that, if you will, Brian. Um, you're talking, what, there from Termin Facken down to Ballystown, that type of geography? Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit wider. It's, it's uh, just beyond Clotterhead, south to Stamullen, right? Right. Now, it's debatable about Stamullen, whether, in a sense, it looks to Balbriggan or Drogheda. But even if you edit out those peripheral bits, you still have a population of over 85,000. But what's interesting, okay. Michael... You're not stretching is, it a bit there, though, are you? No, 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 no. Clower head in the city of Drogheda. Well, well it, would be, it would be in the outer uh, realm of the city of uh, Drogheda. But we, we don't need um, the population to stretch to uh, head to, to achieve city status. Drogheda in 2016 had a population of 41,000. What you can very clearly uh, associate with being part of Drogheda is the coastal region. And the progressive state agencies like Bus Erin see the Drogheda bus services uh, stretching uh, out to Laytown on the coast, for mm. example. Um, the only thing that's, that's a measure at the moment, because um, what they call, you know, you can't, exactly define Drogheda town population until early next year. Mm-hmm. But what you can uh, clearly define is housing completions in the major centres. And what's interesting is that since the last census in 2016, in the six years intervening, uh, the number of housing completions in the greater Drogheda area exceed Dundalk, Letterkenny, Athlone, and Sligo combined. So uh, you've only to look particularly... Mm. Uh, have you the figure, Brian? The, the, the figure, well, the draw the figure is 3,151. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dundalk mm. is 1875, and then the other three have uh, less than yeah. There's no doubt there's been a, a lot of building. The county's uh, population has increased by 10,000, uh, 10%, or no, 8%, by 10,139,100 people now uh, yeah. ex- uh, living in, in County Louth. By the sounds of that, a, a lot of them are in, in Drogheda because of uh, the amount of new houses. Uh, there's a massive increase in Meath, by the way, 25,000 extra yeah. people there, 12.9% increase, one of the fastest growing uh, counties in uh, the country. Uh, yes. But you, you, you believe that parts of Meath should be in Loud or in Drogheda, at least? No, I, I think it's not a county issue. I think Drogheda, um, it needs to be clearly defined what the catchment for Drogheda uh, is because, for example, I live in Bettystown, and uh, if there's a fire in my house, it's Strahda Fire Brigade. Any of your listeners who have an A92 postcode are in the Strahda postal area, and that's uh, very extensive as well. So I think, you know, a number of the state agencies uh, are on the ball. 
some of them are not. The IDA seems to mm. ignore Drada. But if you don't redraw the county borders, uh, how how does it work uh, in practice? Uh, I mean, you, you, in Bettystown, uh, you come under Mead County Council. Uh, should it be yes. Loud County Council? No, I think it should be the Drogheda Metropolitan Council. And I think it should be uh, established uh, jointly between Loud and Mead and to have a distinctive uh, single entity. I mean, the Irish soccer team doesn't have two managers or the rugby team doesn't have two managers but Drada and East Mead have two managers who are both distant in Navan and Dundalk. And that uh, leads to differences in terms of policy and so on. We need mm. somebody... But that's because they're in different that. counties. Um, yeah. the, the, the Irish team and the English team have two different ma- managers, and that's exactly the point. Well, no, the point, the point is that, um, you know, the greater Drada area is clearly... Um, one entity mm. and geographically and as I said it's recognised as such by some state agencies but not all and most importantly by the local authority structure so we need a single administration for for Drahan. Okay, and, not, uh, not, not all would uh, agree Brian but thank you indeed uh, for making the arguments with us uh, this morning uh, uh, and uh, that would take uh, people in Meath out from under the remit of Meath County Council. I'm sure there are people who would uh, agree with that idea. But thank you uh, indeed, uh, Brian Hanratty of uh, the Drogheda City Status Group. Now let's come to some of the comments coming to us. A lot of people in touch with us today. Shane Navin has been in touch. He says it's been part of the plan for years to take the emergency department away from Navin, which is why we are at this crossroads now. If it's not safe, make it safe. Thank you indeed uh, Mark for that. A lot of people are in touch with us uh, about the hospital today and I can give you uh, a taste of what people are, are saying. Uh, Tony and Trim says, Michael, we really know who's in charge of the HSE. Ministers, locally elected representatives have no say. Why elect people when they can't represent the people? It's a sad day for people who vote in this country, says Tony in Trim. Thanks for that. Uh, we were listening uh, to the CEO of uh, the HSE, Paul Reid. Interesting to note today that uh, Paul Reid is actually stepping down from his role as the HSE chief executive uh, and uh, somebody else will be taking over, obviously. Um, but it's Paul Reid uh, who, like um, Dr. Colm Henry on Friday, uh, was telling us, uh, it's Paul Reid today who's saying that the emergency department should close because it's not safe to keep it open and lives are in danger as a result. Weed, uh, Deirdre and Kel saying uh, that uh, the match yesterday was like a, a boxing match. Uh, the fight afterwards. Uh, somebody else about a passport. PJ saying I applied for a, a passport a few weeks ago on a Monday, and I had my passport on a Tuesday. Interesting. Thanks uh, for that, uh, PJ, who says it was rapid fast. Uh, somebody else in touch with us. Uh, I think they were talking about uh, Thomas Burns' interview on the program uh, this morning, saying he was doing great work for Sinn Fein, blaming them for all of the crises that are happening in this country and not 
uh, 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 Sinn Féin's not even in government I beg your pardon uh, that's Eamon No Party uh, thanks Eamon for that uh, Deirdre in touch about the hospital as well saying it would be a disaster uh, Claire in County Meath uh, saying uh, good morning Michael Navin Hospital uh, should be upgraded it should be a decent hospital the Lourdes can't cope it's on its hands and knees can't cope with the amount of people upgrade 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 uh, I think of the ordinary people who are sick of sitting in hospitals waiting for help thank you Claire and Meath uh, Margaret in touch with us about the hospital too saying Thomas Byrne didn't mention the five ICU beds that are in Navin that helped Covid patients where would they have gone to if uh, Navin wasn't there uh, can that be answered by anybody she wants to know as Maggie in touch saying Michael I- I'm just back with my child from the doctors I, I don't have a medical card uh, before my child was seen uh, we paid 40 euro then the doctor decided to, to do a blood test has to be done which uh, won't be till Thursday week that was another 20 euro uh, I'm sick with worry I can't afford to go to the doctor myself I must uh, get heating oil for the winter uh, at the moment 300 litres is approximately 498 euro I, I think worse uh, uh, things uh, could be uh, coming down the track says Maggie thanks uh, for that uh, it is very difficult obviously uh, for people somebody else in touch with us uh, saying my son sent in an application for his two children's first passport all of the information in one envelope yet only one of the two passports were processed then four weeks later the second one arrived all of the information that was given was correct uh, there were no requests for more information or anything like that. Uh, two applications, one envelope, uh, one coming two weeks, uh, four weeks after the other. Interesting stuff as well. Thank you if you have been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the number of uh, people who are homeless in uh, this country increased again last month for the fifth month in a row now. Over 10,000, 10,325 people uh, living in emergency accommodation at this stage. House prices uh, continue to increase, as you've been hearing from the latest daft.ie reported this morning, up 9.5% nationally, up 9% in both Louth and Meath. The average price of a home in this country now is €311,874 nationally, €266,000 in Louth and €319,000 in County Meath. Supply and demand is a problem, but there's a lot of vacant properties in this country. And let's speak uh, to Keane O'Callaghan, who's uh, the Social Democrats spokesperson on housing. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That preliminary census from uh, the CSO last week showed 166,000 vacant properties in this country and 48,000 of those have been vacant for six years. If you were to get half of them uh, back in into operation, you'd go a long way towards solving a lot of the problems in this country with housing. You, you would, and that's exactly what we should be trying to do as a country. It's not, I, I mean, vacant homes aren't the entire solution in terms of our housing crisis, but they definitely are part of it. Uh, and other countries that have used a lot of their vacant uh, homes and properties and got them back into use have seen benefits in terms of housing for that, and then also benefits in terms of, you know, town centres and village centres, which empty properties, bringing them back into life, the, the benefits that comes for the surrounding uh, the surrounding community and the, you know, the, the, the life of, of areas as well. Mm. And there's actually there's environmental benefits as well, because every time you build a new home, that involves a huge amount 
uh, of emissions in terms of the construction materials and transporting them. So if you're actually able to repurpose existing buildings or renovate them, that's much more uh, environmentally, has a much lower uh, footprint. So all around it, it is part of the solution. Uh, one of the things that's been done effectively in other countries is they have put a tax on vacant buildings. So if you have a, a home and it's lying vacant, uh, for a period of time and not, you know, that they would have exemptions for good reasons. You know, if someone is, has to be away for, for work for a prolonged mm. period of time, they'd obviously be exempt or, or for, you know, health reasons or, or anything like that. But if it's some, if a building's just lying vacant, they, they would tax that to create a, an incentive to get it back into use. And, and that's proved quite effective. Is it possible to bring uh, many of uh, these properties back into use? Uh, or, or can you explain h- how it is uh, that 48,000 properties would be vacant for up to six years? Yeah, I mean, and one of the key things to think is that's worth, you know, bearing in mind in terms of vacancy is the longer you leave a building vacant, the more likely it's going to get damaged, the more likely it's going to become derelict, such you might get water coming in you'll have more serious damage and then the cost of renovating it uh, is, is going to increase so one of the key things here is actually not to have buildings uh, vacant for too long uh, because of that uh, but yes no the there is a on posts do a uh, they, do, they do their own count of uh, vacant buildings uh, and they categorize about 90,000 of the homes as 90,000 homes is vacant and a further 20,000 of those in a worse condition is derelict and a further 20,000 of those being derelict uh, commercial buildings. So their data would certainly suggest that most uh, most of these vacant uh, homes could be brought back to use relatively quickly. They would still require some some work, but if you think about what you'd need to put into a building mm. uh, that's vacant compared to a new build, you're, you're talking, you know, you should be talking a lot less expense uh, and, you know, a lot less uh, you know, materials con- con- construction work going into it. So, mm. y- yes, it, yes, it should absolutely be possible uh, to bring most of these back into use. And yes, some will be more more complex and more expensive to, to do. Is it that people can't afford to do it? Uh, people may have inherited property and can't afford to renovate like that. Yeah, that that can often be be a reason. You can, you can have people that they and people as well sometimes buy vacant buildings with a view to renovate them, and then they you know they can't get the the funding together and something that people might think is something that they might hold on to for a year and turn around can end up being five years, ten years. And yes, it can be the people inherit as well. I, I think, though, if, if we're going to grapple with this, we, we have to adopt the mindset that it's not... If someone isn't able to afford to do it, then they, they should really then be set, selling it to someone who can rather than allowing this, this vacancy to perpetuate over many years. And. Mm. What's been done, uh, again, looked at uh, in other countries is, you know, things like compulsory sales orders. So, you know, someone can't just sit in the vacant property indefinitely over a number of years. If you're not using it or putting it to good use or you're not able to, then you do have to sell it on to someone who can. Mm. And also in terms of uh, vacant buildings that are fit for purpose and aren't being rented out, uh, some countries use compulsory rental orders so that you can't simply, uh, you know, have uh, an apartment block and keep 50 50 out of 100 of the apartments empty and not uh, rent them out. You're actually 
obliged to, to rent them out. And I think that would be a much better mindset. We are in a, you know, we are in a very serious house. But you, but you may not be able to afford to rent it out because you can't afford the renovations and the house wouldn't come up uh, to standards. Uh, but I was reading an interesting article actually today in the Irish Independent. There is another option, it seems, is that you could rent it out to your county council. Uh, and uh, the paper was talking to a man called Eddie Corrigan who said he had inherited a three-bed cottage uh, and he couldn't afford to do it. He said it would have fallen asunder uh, without the repair and leasing scheme. Uh, and this is uh, where the council uh, takes the property off you for between five and 25 years and they carry out the repairs and cover the cost of it. And obviously then that's factored into what they pay you. Uh, there's a website, vacanthomes.ie, uh, that people can visit if they want to register uh, to be considered under that scheme. Yeah, and that is a good scheme for people. If if you own a property and you feel you, you don't have the money to renovate it and you want to hang on to it, you can actually use that scheme now, repair and lease scheme. All the county councils use it. Some are, are better at promoting it than others. Waterford is actually the, the best in the country and is used it very effectively. I think it is worth saying that Loud County Council are, are top mm. of the country in terms of CPOing uh, vacant and derelict buildings and bring them back into use. But yeah, if you want to hang on to a property you can't afford to renovate it, uh, you can sign up for that repair and lease scheme. Uh, and then it means it's put to very good use as well because it's something who needs a home is going to be uh, is going to be availing of that, and you you know you get rental income uh, through the leasing mm. uh, on that from the county council as well as them uh, covering uh, the upfront costs of getting it uh, fit for purpose to be rented out. So you know those schemes those schemes which will obviously really increase the value of the property as well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So I mean, it's, look, it's it's much better than leaving yeah. leaving something something empty, you know. And yeah. Yeah, and I, look, if you leave it empty, it's it's going to deteriorate as well. So mm. the the costs involved, you know, it's going to affect the value of it and the costs involved in renovating it as well. So mm. I, I, look, I think we need to be doing everything we can to to tackle this. It isn't going to. Yes, we're going to need new housing supply as well. But this is this is definitely part of the solution. Uh, another scheme um, that was controversial. Uh, when it was introduced by the government is the help to buy scheme uh, and uh, we look at those house prices from daft.ie today and it really is very difficult for first time buyers to get on the ladder uh, this was a scheme that people will remember uh, was to help first time buyers meet the 10% deposit uh, but it looks as though uh, this is going to be scrapped. Uh, the Irish Times is reporting today that as many as a third of those who availed of that scheme uh, didn't need it to get the deposit. Instead, they were using it to create larger deposits. Yeah, that is definitely a, a difficulty with this this scheme. And when these schemes are introduced, if they're not very you know tightly, the, the criteria isn't very tightly thought out. They can actually have an inflationary effect in terms of pushing up house prices. So certainly, that finding that about a third of the people using the scheme didn't need it and effectively just use it to you know you know buy larger houses or get mm. larger deposits together or whatever, that definitely would have an inflationary effect. I, I would imagine that the government aren't going to uh, scrap it or scrap it overnight. They, what they should be doing is, is trying to tighten that criteria so that there's, so it doesn't have, it has less of an inflationary uh, impact. If they scrapped it overnight, it would probably have an effect in terms of housing uh, output. A lot of the uh, builders that are building new homes uh, you, and they're already slowing down in terms of new housing output, uh, just with all the uncertainty and all the increased costs. So mm. to have a very quick withdrawal of the scheme, I don't think they're likely to, to do that. But what they certainly should be doing is, is tightening it up 
uh, and doing that in the budgets. So at, at a minimum that it's only going to people who need need it and not to a, a wider uh, Cohort. It's been very popular uh, by the looks of things. Uh, the cost is 43% over what was estimated. It's running at 560 million euro now. Uh, and uh, so yeah. that's I, been. And one of the things that, uh, worth thinking about that as well is that if you were using that money instead to help build more affordable homes, maybe that would be a better way to help first time buyers. Uh, you know, get to a situation where they can buy a home because we're, you know, last year there was no affordable purchase homes built uh, in the country, uh, zero at all. And the, the figures for this year, you know, you know hopefully we're going to we're going to have better output than that. But we're still just looking at hundreds. Where there's really demands for for thousands of homes at an affordable level. So 560 million euro would go very very far in terms of helping to ensure that we have thousands and thousands of affordable purchase homes built. So it is worth looking at measures like that and seeing. Is there a better way of doing this that actually helps bring down prices rather than has an inflationary effect? Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme as always. Keno Callaghan is uh, the Social Democrats' spokesperson on housing. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if uh, you went out for dinner over the weekend, uh, you may have been asked to pay €30 Euro for a steak or €35 Euro for a steak or €40 Euro for a steak, uh, apparently, in some restaurants uh, these days. And all of the restaurants are jam Packed. There's a lot of money in the country, uh, for some at least. Others are, are not uh, enjoying €40 uh, Euro steaks. Uh, let's speak uh, to Father Sean Healy, who's uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. I'm not sure how, if you've ever paid €40 Euro for a steak or I, 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 if you'd be so inclined to do so. Thanks, Michael. No, no, I've never actually paid that kind of money for a steak. None All right, well, that's the reality of life, uh, I suppose, for some people in this country. Other people will be uh, shaking their heads at the idea of it as they wonder how they'll get to the end of the week without borrowing it again. You've made a, a number of uh, budget decision choices uh, for the government to ponder in a document that you've published today. Uh, and you're looking at earners uh, who uh, have an income of over €400,000 a year and that they should be contributing more, should they? Yeah, I think they we're talking in that context about uh, there should be a minimum effective corp, uh, tax rate that they pay. Uh, the, the, the capacity of people with higher incomes to get away with or uh, to wind up reducing their uh, their tax bill is very substantial. So what we would be saying is that there should be um, a kind of a, a dealing with that issue uh, and uh, and having a, 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 a sort of a, a, a floor in the same way that we argue that the corporate sector. Uh, should be should be paying a floor of a minimum effective corporate tax rate because the reality is this that uh, like the, the the situation is that Ireland is likely to be poorer in the period immediately ahead. We have a serious issue with regard to the cost of living. Mm. But, that's, but it's more than that because we, there's, these are very uncertain times and the rising cost of living could well be combined with extensive inflation and recession before the next 12 months is out. Like we're talking about the budget of 2023, which runs to the end of next year. And therefore, I think we, we could wind up in a quite difficult situation and that would be exacerbated further 
because it could couldn't be it could coincide with a reduction in those windfall corporate taxes that we have. So mm. the reality is that we're looking at a very uncertain future, and that government needs to plan its budget with that uncertain future in mind. Okay, and you're talking about uh, reforming corporate taxes uh, for that matter, uh, because uh, there's a, a lot of big multinational companies uh, who are operating in this country who are paying very little in the way of tax. And that's true, and like some of the and a relatively small number, but if you look at the top hundred companies in our uh, corporate uh, in Ireland, uh, you, the, most of these now would be very substantial, profitable organisations. Uh, but yet, we find some of them paying next to zero or one or two percent of their profits in tax and not going anywhere remotely close to the 12.5% rate that's there. Why? Because they, they have all these kinds of breaks built in that they can benefit from. So we're basically saying uh, that there should be a minimum amount of their profits that they pay. It doesn't have to be huge, but if, if it were even set at 6%, it would be a start. Mm. And it would mean that six or eight of those companies would have to pay 6% of their taxes, uh, of their profits in taxes. You see, when we're looking at it, we're seeing some companies, like the, the corporate tax take is very mm. high, and we have benefited from windfall corporate taxes, really. Uh, but the reality is that within that, when you look at it more closely, not everybody in the corporate sector is uh, paying the kind of levels of tax that would be suspected from, from those kinds of numbers. There are uh, six or eight companies in there with very, very low tax take as a percentage mm-hmm. of their profits. So basically we're saying uh, that they are, they, that needs to be addressed and there should be a minimum there. And the reason for that is that we're, we're facing into a situation uh, where Ireland is going to have to face up to the fact that it's going to have to increase its total tax take, not its income tax, its total tax take. And the reason for that is that we have huge problems in housing, in public transport, mm-hmm. in healthcare, in education, in urban rural divide and so on and that that sort of division needs to be uh, d- dealt with those kinds of um, yeah. shortages for well, you example, can't deal with housing it. and all the rest of it that we're talking about you can't deal with these things unless you have the money to pay Precisely. for the solutions uh, and this minimum effective rate of corporation tax uh, that you're suggesting which is just 6% you say would give the government an extra billion euro that's a lot of money and you could do a lot of work with that that's and that's the point, I suppose, that we're making quite strongly. And I think it's important to, to, to bear in mind that the, the kinds of to- things that we're talking about, they're not excessive in any sense. Uh, th- at the end of the day, Ireland's total tax take is not high by European standards. Uh, yet we're looking for, and most people in Ireland would want, that our uh, infrastructure like our uh, social housing and our uh, public transport and so on uh, and our uh, services like health and education and education that these would in fact be of a standard that would be at the European level at least at the European average so like we we have to face up to the fact that if we want those kinds of that kind of infrastructure if we want our housing issues dealt with if we want our public transport dealt Mm -hmm. with if we want our health care dealt with if we want our urban rural divisions dealt with then we must pay for it Mm. and uh, we can't do it while not paying for it at the same time. Okay, so the way of of raising that money is by increasing taxes and you have many suggestions in that respect uh, but you're not just talking about uh, raising taxes uh, because you say that the taxation system should be fairer and uh, as you've been saying for many years now you're telling uh, us uh, that uh, the government should look at introducing refundable tax credits. 
That's correct. We have a substantial working poor problem in Ireland. There's 100,000 people who have a job who are still living in poverty, despite the fact that they're, uh, they, they, they have that job. So what we're suggesting is that there's two things you, the government can do in the morning, uh, that don't, don't, neither of which costs a huge amount of money, uh, but can both, both together would have a huge impact. The first would be to make tax credits refundable. There's two key tax credits that uh, people who have a job uh, are benefit from. The problem is that people on low incomes don't benefit from the full value of those tax credits. They should be benefit from the full value. Uh, therefore, whatever amount of the tax credit they don't benefit from should be paid to them. The second thing is that the minimum wage needs to move to the living wage and the living wage is 12 euro 90 uh, an hour now the government has committed to move to the living wage but it defines the living wage as uh, 12 euro 17 in 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 2022-23 terms. That's not true. uh, That's below the the living wage. The living wage is €12.90 as defined by the the living wage technical group that calculates this every year, Mm -hmm. of which we're a part. And uh, I think there's a critically important issue there. uh, To get the the living wage and the minimum wage at the same level to make sure that it's actually at a level that provides a minimum essential standard of living for people, then you're in a, in, in a position where uh, uh, people with a week's work will know that at least they're earning the basics, the, the, enough money to provide the basics. Now, that's, that's still challenging because there's no, there, there's no leeway if anything goes wrong in that context. But at least it would go quite a distance from where we are at the moment, where we, we like have the best part of 600,000 people living in poverty and 160 plus thousand of those are children. That's not, uh, that's not a good situation to be in uh, for, for, for Ireland to be in. And the problem we have when we're looking at welfare, for example, mm. is that uh, the government gave no increase at all in two of the last three budgets. And then in the last most recent budget for 2022, it gave a five euro of an increase. But the problem with the five euro is that inflation has led to a reduction in the value of, of the welfare uh, payment of 17 euro. So giving them five, a fiver means that they're tw- uh, people who are depending on that uh, are 12 euro a week worse off and if you don't you, you therefore have to make compensate for all that there's a thing in this morning's papers mm. front page story in one of the national uh, papers uh, where a government minister is saying that they have to pay at least 10 euro well if if they only pay 10 euro at to the, uh, increase core welfare rates uh, in the coming year that means in effect that in 2023 the people the poorest in society will see their value of their uh, welfare payment fall by uh, 10 euro a week, which is the best part, part of 5%, which is, with all due respects to the said government minister and the government itself, is just totally unacceptable. We have to have a situation where the the, the, the priority in this context is that uh, the, the core principle, in fact, that should guide the budget, budget is that government should protect the most vulnerable. And that, in effect, means 20 euro a week in the basic welfare rate increase for 2023 budget. Yeah, but uh, the government will be hoping to make popular decisions if most people don't need that type of assistance. uh, Maybe there's something else that they look at. I'm sure there's a, a whole lot of different things that government would look at, but what I'd be looking at is to say to government, uh, 
on the one side uh, you should make to, you should protect the most vulnerable so that means welfare mm. rates up 20 euro make tax credits refundable uh, increase the, the, the minimum wage to the living wage and make it real at 12 yeah. euro 90 but on the other side then I would say uh, invest uh, very substantially in social housing because until such time as we have enough social housing uh, to, to meet the demand the price of buying a house or renting a house in the private sector is mm. going to keep going up and to, 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 to achieve that we've got to get to the, uh, the housing in the country about the European average is 20% okay. of, of will that when you vote? Will, will that win you votes? Are, are they popular decisions? Uh, or, or would you be better served politically by looking at somebody who's on over 400,000, uh, who now has to pay 40 euro in their favourite restaurant for a steak, and you're talking about taxing them more? Right. Uh, it's a question of choices, and that's why we call the policy briefing that we're publishing today, later today, uh, the title of it is Budget Choices. Government has to make choices. The society has to make choices. We are in a situation where Irish people, the, all Irish people, are going to be poorer in the period, period immediately ahead. Some people have the resources already to actually deal with that. We had, last week we saw uh, several thousand public uh, employees with incomes over 150,000 getting a 15 or 20% incre- increase. Okay, they claim it's a refund from whatever. The, the bottom line in that is that there's people uh, uh, looking at, a lot of people are looking at uh, people like consultants and so on, who, got a, who are going to get an increase of fifteen or 20,000 a year uh, on top of a very substantial salary, and they themselves don't, don't get a full payment. The welfare payment for, at the core level is far below 20,000 a year. So like we, we have to face up to the fact that everybody's going to be poorer. Some people can take the hit and other people can't. The first priority should be the core principle should be that all measures adopted prioritise the protection of the most vulnerable groups in our society. And that means, in effect, the people in the bottom 20% uh, who have lost out, many of whom have lost out in recent budgets. And that needs to be reversed. Okay, As you say, you're publishing Budget Choices 2023 today. Thanks indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme, Sean. Father Sean Healy is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Some comments coming to us... uh, from Frank, first of all, uh, about vacant properties. He says, you should see the amount of unused buildings in Drogheda that are growing grass out of them. Uh, You couldn't be bringing them back into use, says Frank. Joe in touch with us saying, uh, there's a house with a a shop locally that has been empty for 20 years. Uh, Somebody else says, Michael, the population of Drogheda is more than the part in County Louth. Uh, Drogheda is in both counties. There's now 56,000 people between Mornington and Tully Allen, not even including Laytown or Clara Head, Dulik or Monaster Boyce, bigger than Waterford, which has uh, similar county issues, yet they have a, a city. Thanks for that. Brian then texting on the same subject. Uh, our last caller might be interested in what Brian has to say because he wants to know if Drogheda can claim RD. 
Or can we have it in Dundalk, he says. Also, we would like Carlingford, O'Meath, Cooley, Blackrock in the Dundalk area. Or does Drogheda want it, uh, asks Brian, who says uh, that the arguments to make Drogheda a city by uh, looking at such a big geographical area is rubbish. Thank you indeed, Brian, for your text. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Very interesting to read uh, that 15% of all prisoners in this country are sex offenders. Uh, and that compares to 9% of inmates in 2007. Uh, this was reported uh, by the Irish Examiner last week and Cormac O'Keefe in his article tells us uh, that the Irish Prison Service now wants to increase the percentage of sex offenders undergoing treatment from around 25% in recent years to as high as 80%. Let's speak to Maeve Lewis, who's uh, the CEO of the One in Four group. Uh, a very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, and I know that uh, you do offer services to sex offenders yourself. Is it possible to treat people successfully uh, if they haven't sought that treatment out themselves? Well, at one in four, um, we work with offenders who at least have acknowledged some part of the offending. And I suppose that's based on previous international research and best practice. So the bottom line in one in four is that everybody who comes to us has been caught in some way. Either the Gardaí have done a morning raid on their homes because they've been downloading images of child sexual abuse, or perhaps there's been a disclosure in the family and the family contact us. Um, in prisons up till now the same sort of approach has been used in that people were only admitted to the Building Better Lives programme which deals with sex offending if they acknowledged that they had committed the crime and I mean the, the, the statistics are astounding that you know fewer than uh, perhaps uh, 25% of convicted sex offenders who are only a small minority of offenders um, will actually acknowledge that they yes they did do this um, so it's very heartening to read that based on more recent research, the prison uh, services um, under the leadership of Emma Regan, the psychological services, are now rethinking their approach to working with sex offenders. And their hope is that this will expand the programme to include most sex offenders who are in prison, whether or not they're actually acknowledging uh, what they have done. Mm. And I think this is really important because all the research would show consistently that with good intervention treatment programmes, uh, the rate of reoffending drops dramatically. Okay. So this is really a child protection issue. In one in four, mm. we work with offenders who sexually abuse children, mm. but in the prison, obviously, they also incorporate people who have committed sexual assaults or rapes against adults. It, 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 does treatment differ uh, with... Uh, people who've uh, assaulted adults uh, instead of uh, child sexual uh, abusers, uh, is it easier to treat people who've uh, assaulted adults? I think that really depends, Michael, um, on the offender, on the type of offence. I mean, I think the whole country was shocked recently at that case in the Midlands where five men were convicted of raping a young woman um, in a car, giving her a lift home from um, a night out. And the level of disregard for their victim was absolutely astonishing. 
and they showed no sign of shame or regret as to what had happened. Well, at least four of them mm. didn't. Um, so, I mean, the, the main focus of treatment is to help the offender understand what it is that has led them to uh, commit this very, very mm. serious, unspeakable crime mm. and to understand what it is in their background, in their upbringing, um, in their way of living in the world that led them to commit this type and of crime. I take it that many of them would uh, argue that it's their sexuality. Uh, I mean, it seems to be uh, a view that paedophiles hold. Uh, I was reading in, in uh, that article in the Irish Examiner that 4,331 cases of child sexual abuse were reported to TUSLA in 2021. In just one year alone, that's an incredible amount of offences. It is. And one thing perhaps um, people don't understand is that it's a relatively small minority of sex offenders, of child sex abusers, are actually paedophiles in the sense that they are only attracted to sexually to children. I mean, the vast majority of the people attending the One in Four programme um, are in relationships with adults. They are also sexually attracted appropriately, uh, you know, to people their own age. So um, paedophilia is relatively rare. Uh, The gamut of sexual offending, sadly, is not. Mm. Okay, uh, but it, it is one of uh, the problems, isn't it, that people will deny that they've committed a, a crime because they don't see it as a, a crime and uh, quite often you'll hear arguments uh, that it was consensual, let alone anything else. Well, when it comes to the sexual abuse of children, there is mm. no issue of consent. Yeah. No, is not I understand, but yeah. this is the problem that you have, that you're facing when you're trying to uh, treat uh, these people. Yeah, I mean, what we find is that the offenders have very distorted thinking, they will have managed to um, bring themselves to a state of mind where they believe that the child is engaging with them in an informed way, that the child may be enjoying it, that there's a very special loving relationship, Um, whereas of course the reality is quite different. Mm. And, And part of the treatment is helping people to see, you know, exactly what the nature of the relationship was that it was all about power, it was all about control, it was about meeting other needs through the sexual abuse um, of the child. Mm. And, I mean, people, our programme runs for between 18 to 24 months, and the crucial, I suppose, moment usually comes well after a year into that programme, where it suddenly and finally dawns on somebody what they have done and the harm they have caused. And once people really can accept that, that's the point where it is, becomes much less likely yeah. that they will ever commit a similar I'm, re- I'm really curious at how you say the treatment works um, for so many people, even if they haven't chosen themselves to go into treatment. Uh, if that's the case, should it not be obligatory for somebody uh, in prison uh, to go into treatment uh, before they're released? Well, I think... Um Emma Regan makes a very good point when uh, she talks about the fact that in the prison, uh, traditionally, people would be only would only engage in a programme in the last two years of their sentence, and that excluded the many, many offenders who get sentences of less than two years. But she <clears throat> explains very well that really you start the moment somebody comes into prison. And I, we would echo this in one in four. It is about building a relationship with the offender which is a very challenging task for a psychologist or a psychotherapist. Mm. It is about 
getting to know the person, yes, acknowledging and um, hating what they have done, but actually getting to know the person in a very real way, creating a therapeutic alliance, um, beginning to understand where they're coming from, um, helping them to understand what it is in their background that has led them to this point, um, making them feel seen as a human being as opposed to, I suppose, the demonisation that goes on about uh, sex offenders in society. So that's very, very challenging work and it's not for the faint-hearted. Okay. Are there enough people to do the work? No, there aren't. Um, I mean, at one in four, we've just been recruiting and what we have, what we regularly have to do is recruit experienced psychotherapists who have um, a lot of experience of working with survivors and then we provide our own training course um, because there just aren't people out there who have that sort of forensic background. Um, so, um, and likewise, I think um, the, the prison service struggle to find uh, psychologists, psychotherapists who are available to do this work. Mm. I mean, I can remember when I was training as a psychotherapist, Michael, we were asked, you know, what group of people would you really not want to work with? And out of a face, almost everybody in my class said, oh, we wouldn't work with sex offenders. Mm. But the bottom line is, unless we do, unless we create a culture where maybe people who are beginning to have thoughts about sex offending or those who've actually committed an offence um, have somewhere to go uh, to talk about what's going on. So we really need um, a whole cohort of psychologists and psychotherapists okay. who are trained and equipped to Absolutely. do this work. It's and while it's very challenging, mm-hmm. it is very, very rewarding work. You know, we run an aftercare group as well for people who've completed our programme. And we always bring our new psychotherapists into that programme mm. so that they can see what Huge work can work. achieve and mm-hmm. the big changes mm-hmm. that okay. are taking place. Maeve, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Maeve Lewis, who's the CEO of One and Four. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.